I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, December 17th on CBC Radio. Debates over foreign policy and mounting affordability crises at home. The House of Commons fall sitting ended flush with tension. First up, our Sunday politics panel picks up where Ottawa left off. After that, how touch is reinventing everything for deafblind people. You'll meet the poet and activist John Lee Clark and discover his passion for protactyl, a language he says can be revolutionary for those with hearing and vision loss. We will chart what's next for Ukraine as Western funding stalls, leaving big concerns about the future of the war there. And later on, the Washington Post Taylor Lorenz brings us the TikTok of tech news for 2023. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Well, that's it for the House of Commons this fall. MPs are heading back to their ridings for a six-week break. And it was a packed end to business and debate in the House with calls for a ceasefire, the ongoing cost-of-living crisis, and even an attempt to delay the winter break with an around-the-clock vote. Our Sunday Politics panel is back to take on all of that and peer into the next year. Susan Delacorte is a national columnist with the Toronto Star. Matt Gurney is a Sirius XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. Hello, hello. Let us uh, start where we have been for some time now in terms of the biggest... um, you know, issue that is challenging many governments around the world. Uh, this, of course, is the Israel-Hamas war. The federal government's decision to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas happened a number of days ago, Susan, this past week. Um, Kendall also joined Australia and New Zealand in calling for a sustained ceasefire. And then later that same day, I think it was, voted for one at the UN's General Assembly. This was a non-binding vote, but it is a policy shift for Canada. So, Susan, what were the political considerations for the governing Liberals here? Well, I think we're being told to take... I'm glad you mentioned both of those developments, because I think we're being told to take them as a matched set. Hmm. You know, that... um, the first thing that has to be said is Canada is not a big player in the Middle East. So I've been watching all the way through this, how much we are doing in coordination with our allies. And, you know, 
Melanie Jolie took a lot of hits for saying that we are a convening power, but but we are not a singular power or even a force in the Middle East. So we have to act with allies. So this week was interesting because you're seeing sort of the world is sort of nudging toward this idea of ceasefire, the United States less quickly than others. Uh, so Canada voted for a ceasefire at the UN, yes, but also in its resolution with Australia and New Zealand, it told me again that to understand what Canada is doing, you've got to watch what it's trying to do or not do in coordination with its allies. And I'm if that makes any sense. It, it does. And I'm wondering, Susan, though, when, when you look at, you know, the protests here at home um, and that kind of pressure, do you think that influenced the governing Liberals at all? I'm sure it did. And it was interesting also to see that um, members of caucus spoke out against the UN vote quite forcefully. Uh, the, my team, the reporter team, was trying to figure out whether this meant that that people um, were going to leave Liberal caucus over this, whether there were divisions. I didn't see it exactly that way. I think it's for all parties, this is a, a serious source of schisms and divisions. And I think what I saw the Liberals doing this week was um, doing steam vents. You know, they, they were they were issuing statements on Twitter against the government's uh, vote at the UN, but not in a way that, that threatened their standing in caucus. I hmm. think they're trying to demonstrate that um, this is a tough issue inside the Liberal Party for the people we represent, but for the people in the room as well. And the people you're talking about there are specifically two MPs, Marco Mendicino, whose constituency in his riding is, it has a large Jewish population, and Anthony um, Housefather uh, of Quebec, and um, is Jewish himself, but also has a large constituency there. Matt, you had... I'd add another one. Okay. Can I add another one? To, uh, late in the week was uh, Anna Ganey, newly elected uh, MP from uh, in Montreal, not just a newly elected MP, one of Trudeau's closest friends. And the fact that she felt that she could speak out about this, about the UN vote, told me that this is not only sanctioned, but maybe even encouraged in the Liberal Party. Hmm. You mean that people are allowed to speak out and, and disagree? Allowed to speak out, yeah. Yeah, which is somewhat, some would argue, somewhat unusual for the Liberals, because usually they like to really close ranks. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, but they a little more tolerant of dissent than past governments I've seen. Okay. Matt, you've said that the Liberals are in a particularly tricky spot when it comes to picking a stance on the Middle East. So how do you see the political implications of calling for that sustained ceasefire now? I think I, I generally agree with what, what Susan had said. Um, and I think to her point about whether or not this was actually going to crack the Liberal caucus open, I, I agree that I, I never really saw that as likely. The maybe possible exception of that is that I have been kind of looking at Anthony uh, Houthfather's position with an increasingly skeptical eye. Um, I agree with Susan about the uh, tweets this week. I think those were strategic to blow off a little steam. But I think Housefather is in, a, is in a really tricky spot, and he's been out there um, hardest and longest. So I think probably he's feeling the pressure more than anyone. But I think, you know, just to re-rack re uh, re this right to the start of the question, Pia, about like the politics of this all. Susan had mentioned that we're supposed to take the UN vote, but also the statement with the, the Australians and the New Zealanders as part of a whole package. And I think she's right. But I would add to that, we also had the Melanie Jolie press conference after the vote. And we also had a tweet by Melanie Jolie at around the time of the vote. And if you look at all four of these things together, I think Susan has it exactly right. We're supposed to look at them as a package. 
but none of them really fit that nicely together. Like I ended like there is a through line through them, but the government is definitely trying to fudge this as it goes to basically try to go. We have a statement coming out with our allies and the statement is calling for a ceasefire, but under terms that effectively amount to a Hamas military surrender. And then we have the UN vote, which is an unconditional ceasefire demand on Israel. And then we have Melanie Jolie tweeting at the same time, you know, we, we call for a ceasefire, but then she adds, but it can't be one-sided. And then we have a press conference where she got a bit of a rough ride by the reporters uh, who just noted all these contradictions here. Pia, to your question about why this is hard on the liberals, it's hard on the liberals because I think the fault line of Canadian public opinion runs through their caucus. The mm. NDP and the conservatives don't have that problem. And I think they're trying to find some way of ticking all of the necessary boxes here. But you end up with what we saw last week, which was basically four statements within a matter of hours. None of them exactly mesh well together. So, Susan, I'm going back to this political implications question. So if we take Matt's point there, what are the political implications if the Liberals don't pick a lane? And I, I put that in quotes, but don't pick a side. I mean, traditionally, we have always sided with the U.S. when it comes to the to the Middle East, for the most part, or, or to, for the Israel um, conflict. Um what are the political implications if you try and play, as Matt saying, sort of that middle of the road? Oh well, it, you run the risk, as Matt points out, of, of of sounding almost incoherent. I've been really intrigued to see the way in which the United States has polarized on this, and particularly opinion around Biden. A few weeks ago, there was a, a poll showing that it was there's a massive age difference, uh, demographic difference in whether you supported Biden and what he was doing on Israel or not. Young people, people under 40, massively against what he was doing on Israel. People over 60 or sort of more experienced voters, shall we say, um, were massively in favor. Hmm. And I think that that speaks to the difficulty for all uh, governments, progressive governments alike. Matt's right. The, the fault line runs right through the Liberal caucus. And um, I, again, I don't think the Liberal caucus is going to implode over this. I think it just tells us how difficult this issue is going to be. Hmm. All right, let's talk about another foreign policy uh, issue. This this is Ukraine. And I think, at least from what I was reading, a lot of people are sort of head scratching over this one. Um, the Conservatives have been opposing the Canada-Ukraine free trade deal. Its members also voted against a measure that would fund Canada's training of Ukrainian soldiers. Matt, I say head-scratching because I, I think a lot of analysis I've been reading is that people don't really know what the Conservatives are trying to achieve by doing this. So what's your read? Uh, well, I mean, I, I start from saying I completely agree with you. I, I'm doing a little head-scratching myself here. Um, the thing that I would put right at the beginning is the fact that if you have Michael Chong three weeks later still out there tweeting to, like his heart away, trying to explain what they're doing, we should take that as a sign that even the Conservatives don't think it's gone well for them. Um, this is a whole <laughs> lot of explaining after the votes here. My gut feeling is that you know, I know there's been a lot of speculation that this is all some nudge, nudge, wink, wink, kind of a pro-Putin element of the far right. I don't know. There might be some of that going on with some of the weirder members of the caucus here. But from like a top-down level of what the party thought it was doing, I think they just got vote blind. Like, I think they were so locked in on the carbon tax and sort of the we're going to vote – uh, we're going to vote to oppose literally everything we can because, hey, we're up 19 points in the polls and that's what we do because we're winning. 
And I think probably no one in the room put their hand up and said, do we really want to go on the record opposing Canadian military assistance to Ukraine? Mm -hmm. This really does seem like a failure of imagination more than any kind of deliberate pivot on policy. Look, this would be really easy to fix if Pierre Polyev just comes out and gives a pretty concise statement and clarifies it. The fact that they're sending out Michael Chong repeatedly here suggests to me that they've just plain old-fashioned outsmarted themselves. Mm. Susan, what's your, what's your read? Because Matt's saying, you know, the opposed to oppose kind of thing, a failure of imagination, I think is what he said there. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think for the, a large amount of caucus, that's probably true. I, I will tell you, about a few months ago, I got a heads up about this, that uh, watch the Conservatives on Ukraine. There's some signs of wavering there. And I went, nah, that can't be true, right? That um, Project Unifier is something that Stephen Harper started, much to his pride and much to his credit, uh, which is the operation in which Canadian uh, military people train Ukraine soldiers. And it's been largely seen as a success and very valuable. And to see, first of all, there was the free trade vote, and that that was tense. And um, for those who haven't been following closely, the, there's a Canada-Ukraine free trade pact. Conservatives voted against it. I couldn't believe that when I saw it. I thought, what? And then this explanation about the carbon tax, which even Ukraine was saying, that's not a big deal for us. Then these votes in the House. And... Uh, it, was, it didn't go unnoticed. The uh, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, uh, the Ukrainian ambassador, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress put out tweets or Xs, whatever we're calling them now, saying, I can't believe this. This has happened twice. And I agree with Matt. Matt had a, a witty post on X uh, this week, too, saying, if um, just take a few more tweets from Michael Chong to explain uh, what's going on here. But I will say, too, I... When I first got a heads up about this, I decided to do a search on how often Pierre Polyev had talked about Ukraine in the House of Commons. I got nine mentions hmm. since the war started. That's two years ago. And most of them were, you can't blame Ukraine for inflation. Um, he, I don't know whether it's a diplomatic silence or a strategic silence, but uh, he has not been full-throated. And that may be because, as Matt mentioned, there is an element... Uh, on the right, the Maxime Berniers, that you know, the the People's Party folks, and and sort of the way out there people who have been taking a more of a, I wouldn't say, let's not say sympathetic to Putin, but open-minded mm. to Putin in a way that most of the not with the Canadian consensus on this. Yeah, except which, for, I guess the point there, Susan, is, and I think Matt sort of hinted at this too. If it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to that small constituent of your whatever, base or further than your base, it didn't go unnoticed, as you said, by everyone else. No. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, again, head scratching is right. I am, I am completely baffled why they would, um, I, I was, uh, Paul Wells, I'll give him credit for saying this. He said, you know, uh, if Pierre Polyev is going to end up as prime minister, right now there are briefing books being written by embassies and diplomats around the world, and this is going in there. Huh. You know, that... Yeah. Uh, so I, I, it it does baffle me, um, and maybe a few more tweets from Michael Chong are what we need. But it, there's there's certainly 
I, I agree they're in some kind of damage control about this right now, and probably they should be. And maybe the break will, you know, sometimes make things kind of go uh, away. A little so time out, as Karina yeah. Gould said. Yes. Um, all right, let's uh, talk about domestic issues. Of course, uh, the biggest issue for Canadians domestically is the cost of the affordability crisis. It dominated much of the fall sitting. I think um, Pierre Polia brought it up every day that he was in the House. It was like one of his first things he talked about. There's the housing crisis. I'm kind of coupling these together, and I know they're quite separate things, but I just want to talk a bit about this plan by the federal government, which they uh, revealed this past week, which is reviving a housing plan from the Second World War that would create this catalog of pre-approved housing designs that could speed up construction. So we have the housing crisis on, on, on in, in one bucket. We have all the inflationary costs and cost of living things in other buckets, but kind of put together, Matt, and maybe unfairly, I shouldn't put them together. Are these the kinds of wins that the Liberals need when it comes to these issues, especially when we're all still feeling the pinch so much? Well, I think that's exactly it. And I'm going to totally evade the totally great question you're asking there, because I obviously <laughs> don't know yet. Um, I will say that if these are the things that if they'd started doing them three years ago, I think it's a lot easier for the three of us to talk this morning about how it's going for them. The question I honestly have here, and let's take the uh, the, the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation catalog uh, that we're going to bring back, that Second World War era tool of pre-approved build plans that will apparently knock about a year off a typical construction project. That's amazing, but we're not going to have it until next year. And it's going to be what the minister has called like a living document. So it's going to be constantly updated with more and more build plans. I think this is a great idea. But when I was listening to his press conference this week, I'm trying to extrapolate out when this is actually going to start making a difference. So it's going to take us at least some number of months to come up with the catalog. It will then knock a year off a typical construction project. And some of these construction projects can run two or three years. So I'm thinking to myself, we probably won't see the first home built under this catalog's new rules until sometime in 2025 at the earliest here. This is such a cliche, and I, I feel a little embarrassed bringing it up here. I, I wish I was bringing something better than this warmed over uh, a little, little oldie, but <laughs> I just don't know if they've got enough runway left to mm. execute on these things. And I think probably they've done everything in the last six months that they should have been doing over the last three or four years. And they've done it with energy and urgency and enthusiasm. And I think that's I think that's great. I bet the liberals wish they had 15 more Minister Frasers. I just don't know if they've left themselves enough time. Hmm. Susan, how are you as we wrap this year up thinking about what the liberals have done on the cost of living, affordability, housing? It's so unfair <laughs> for me to do this to you and to fairly, frankly, to the government, too, because they are uh, different things. But how, how would you assess their what they've been doing. Well, I'm going to, I'm not weaseling out of this by mentioning Biden again, too, but I was watching some um, American commentary this week showing that even though the economy is doing okay in the United States, Biden is not getting any credit for that. And I think what you've got here is people angry about things. Um, Matt's right. You know, they should have been doing this a long time ago. I'm not I think what's being woven and smushed together, technical term, is the <laughs> Trudeau fatigue with people feeling pinched. And I don't know that the Liberals can unravel that or unsmush it um, because it, people are just in a really bad mood and they feel like life is going to hell and they're looking for somebody to blame for it. And it's Trudeau. Will If things get better, will they stop blaming Trudeau? I don't know. I think that's a big question that liberals are asking right now. Um, I do want to talk about the NDP because, again, um, this past week, a lot of people were saying that 
look at this NDP, like look what they were able to achieve in this agreement, the supply and confidence deal with the government, which was signed, by the way. I had to look this up because I was like, how long has this thing been going on? March of 2022. So it, it got the dental care thing that it was pushing for. They The two parties have extended the deadline to get a pharmacare deal done. Uh, it was supposed to be the end of this year until March 2024. Susan, ha- 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 have things ever been better for the NDP in terms of this agreement than right now? Well, I think they'd be perfect if they got PharmaCare. Those two things you mentioned are what persuaded me this week that they are really committed to this deal. Because technically, they were supposed to have PharmaCare in place or some kind of plan in place. They were told early in the fall, in September, we heard there was tension and that the Liberals weren't going to go there. The fact that they gave there's an extended deadline. The fact that the Liberals let the NDP run some victory laps this week about dental care tells me that both sides are really committed to this deal and they're not walking away from it. Hmm. So, you know, it's lasted longer than the average minority government now, but, um, and I, I don't see any sign that it's not going to be working. Right. So Matt, do you read this as the liberals being committed to it because of their low poll numbers? I know someone's going to write and say there was this poll this week and there was, and it was done for Susan's newspaper (laughs) that showed that the liberals um, had gone up, the conservatives come down, but there's still a widespread. Um, So, so are you reading the the liberals commitment to this deal because they really don't want to go to the polls anytime soon and don't want to risk that? Oh, I mean, the short answer, yeah. Um, And I think everything we were just talking about a minute ago here about uh, the Liberals trying to get things turned around on cost of living issues, the the key part of all of that is having time for these measures to take effect and also time for these measures to trickle out and for Canadians to to hear about them, right? Because the three of us, like, we do not represent the average Canadian in terms of news consumption, right? Like, the Liberals need some time for pharmacare and and, and dental care and, and the housing moves, not just to have practical effect, but also to, to burst out of the bubble that we all live in and actually reach Canadians out there who are currently freaked out about paying their credit card bill at the end of the month. So they need the time here. And as for the NDP, I mean, similar situation. You brought up polls, right? And obviously, I know the one you're talking about, the one that suggested maybe a bit of a bounce uh, for the Liberals there. A few weeks ago, I was looking at the polls, and they were all just un, just relentlessly bad news for the Liberals, week after week after week. But what I was really watching was to see if the NDP numbers ever rose high enough that the NDP might have had a shot of displacing the Liberals. And there were a couple of polls that came close to suggesting it might be about to happen, but then it faded away. Hmm. So maybe a month ago, I was thinking, I don't know, maybe the NDP is going to start rethinking this deal. But where we stand right now, the victory laps uh, that the NDP was taking this week, and I think that's phrased exactly right. This is the Liberals basically going, look, we need you. I think you've been reminded that you need us. It's almost over. It's almost time for us all to go home and see our families and do some laundry. But yeah, you can you can go out there and and celebrate what you've done, and let's just try to end this year on a good note. I I don't unless the polls change dramatically again. I I just can't imagine either of these parties wanting out of this deal. Well, they have six weeks to do all the laundry that they need to do, uh, and then they'll be back <laughs> in dreary you know January where like you know everyone's kind of like paying those post-holiday bills. It's it's a hard time for Canadians every year. So, Susan, what do you expect? Like, what are you looking to when they return to the House, sort of the, the prognostications of what's going to be on the agenda? Well, I'll give my kind of glib answer to that. Every February has turned out to be a bit of a disaster for this, this Prime Minister. You think of a controversy that usually started, whether it was SNC-Lavalin, the 
Jody Wilson-Raybould fuss, whether it was the India trip. Um, this year, things were ticking along, and then foreign interference blew up in February. So, And the Ukraine war mind, started two years ago. Exactly, February, yeah. the convoy. Um, so I... I am reminded that February is always something that this prime minister has to endure and it's um, and there will be some sort of surprise. I think it, it, to speak in what the liberals are hoping for, barring, albeit those, the February surprise, I think is what Matt was talking about is that, that things are going to start getting better. Interest rates are going to go down, that, uh, they believe that that little bounce they saw in the polls, and it was a very modest bounce, um, is because people are taking a closer look at Pierre Polyev. And that is still a big question mark in, in a lot of the polling. There's Even the polls that show Polyev doing well show that Canadians have reservations about him. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see the Liberals fighting back more on that. You've heard the Prime Minister increasingly willing to call Polyev the... Um, the new Trump, uh, mm. Trump North, I think. So I think you're going to see a, lo- a lot more of that. Um, and, and maybe maybe a little more aggressiveness by way of defense from the Liberals. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks both of you for all of 2023 and being here often and always Thanks, smartly been, and kindly. Fun. Yeah, and, and happy holidays to both of you. We'll see you both in 2024. Happy holidays. Okay. See you, see you guys. Susan Delacourt, national columnist with the Toronto Star, and Matt Gurney, SiriusXM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. He's in Toronto. Susan's in Ottawa. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Well, John Lee Clark is an award-winning American poet, author, and teacher. He's also deaf-blind, which means he has a combination of sight and hearing loss. Along his journey, John's become an activist for his community, as well as an advocate for a relatively modern way of communicating, one that he says is more than a language. He describes it as a philosophy and a new way of life that he says is reinventing everything. It's called Protactile, and John channels his passion for it in his new book, which is called Touch the Future, a Manifesto in Essays. John Lee Clark, good morning. So nice to be able to talk with you today. Likewise, likewise, Pia. Thanks so much for having me. I have to say, I wish that we were seated side by side and in touch with one another, you know, being at a distance, I'm in Oregon, and I know you're up in Toronto, so we're spanning quite the distance this morning. <laughs> but still, nevertheless, we're finding a way to connect, right? Through the magic of radio. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So the voice you are hearing, dear listeners, is the voice of Helene Anderson, John's interpreter. She's sharing John's words and his thoughts and ideas. And the two of them are communicating using Protactile or PT, which is this language developed and used primarily by people who are deafblind. So, John, I can hear some sounds coming through at your end, some clicking and clacking. Can you describe how protactile works um, and how it's different from, say, American Sign Language or ASL, which many people will be familiar with? Oh, yes, sure. There is quite a distinction. ASL or any visual gestural language. All over the world, there are distinct signed languages. And all of those signed languages are used by deaf communities and ha- have emerged in and from deaf communities. They're based, obviously, on vision. And the 
articulatory system is typically with the face, the grammar is communicated on the face, and then signs are articulated with the two hands in what we call airspace. Airspace, that's using the empty space, like typically in front of your face and chest to communicate in ASL, which of course is a visual mode of communication. Mm -hmm. So that's one modality for language, a visual modality. In protactile, we use the tactile and proprioceptive modalities. So right now I'm seated with Hal. She and I are seated so that we're facing each other, but we're beside each other. So our thighs are adjacent. And I have, one of her hand is on mine. The other one I'm using to make more language by which she can feel because I'm actually articulating with what we call contact space on Hal's body as I would any interlocutor. I'm using her arm, areas of her chest, the top of her thigh, onto the back of her neck and head. And so there are different grammatical aspects of protactile. We don't communicate at a distance like people would in the visual modality where they're standing or seated at a distance from one, from one another so that they can see and provide visual back-channeling cues to kind of keep the conversation going. Instead, we in protactile use tactile back-channeling cues. So all of my emotions in terms of how I am receiving a person's message is also communicated as I'm receiving it. So contact space um, is immense and powerful, and that's part of the articulatory system of protactile language. I know it's um, complex, but just if I'm understanding you um, correctly, John, you and Helene are sitting like very close to, to each other, like facing each other, and you're using this different grammar spaces on the body, to put it simply, like squeezing, stroking, touching her to communicate. Is that a fair kind of rudimentary explanation? Uh-huh. There are a lot of what we call movement contacts. So the way that I get in touch with the surface of Hal's body, for example, p- different degrees of pressure that are used, different traces, different taps. So for example, I'm taking Hal's hand now and I am holding it in my left hand while I make movement contact with my right. As an example, I could press with all four fingers on Hal's hand for a longer period of time, maybe with one finger, maybe with the whole finger versus the fingertip, maybe take all four fingers and scratch downward. All of those different movements are distinctive. And that's the phonology of the language. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Sure. And the syntax of the language. So there are different locations also. It's not just that the palm of your interlocutor's hand can be used. What you can do is create what we call a proprioceptive construction, where I would ask for Halene to assume a certain hand shape, like let's say the shape of your hand if it were holding a cup. And I would then take that cup and proceed to bring it to my mouth to drink from it. Hmm. And those are very vivid constructions, as you can imagine, very vivid. And by vivid, I mean tactily vivid. So I could chop the plane of Halene's hand which would be like as if I was chopping something on a horizontal surface. But if I were to have her arm raised up vertically, and then I chopped below her elbow, it would be more like I was chopping down a tree, Hmm. you know, or something pillar-like. And so these are very vivid, tactily descript productions, as you can imagine. And so it puts us in a real vital space where language is in emergence um, and and just yeah, very generative. It's it's very vivid to me as well, John. I'm closing my eyes as I'm listening to you explain it, and I I can, I can visualize it. So thank you for that. 
for um, some of our listeners are going to be familiar with you, but others, this will be an introduction to them of you. So I just want to give them a sense of who you are, how, how you got here. You were born deaf to an all deaf family that used American Sign Language, ASL. And then around 12, John, you started to lose your vision due to a genetic disorder called Usher syndrome. How did that affect your ability to communicate with the language you'd grown up with? Mm, yeah, that's an entailed question. So my father, he also is deaf blind, as is my brother. My mother and my sister are deaf. And when I was a baby, I don't know how much vision I was born with, perhaps never completely sighted, right? I could never see at night or in the darkness. So I always was deafblind, essentially. But the degree to which I used my vision during the day when I was a youngster was a lot more. And it was when I was. One second for the interpreter. When I was seven, my mom and dad knew that I had Usher syndrome by that point. And so I started to learn Braille at the age of seven. But I wasn't um, an avid reader at that point. As my vision changed, I was 13 approximately when I started to engage in a more tactile way with the world. So I would, when I was signing with someone, I would go ahead and want their hand on mine or and put my hand on theirs to receive the language that they were using. It wasn't pro-tactile language because that hadn't been conceived of, but it was still signing, people signing American Sign Language, but I was putting my hands on it to try to feel what I couldn't see. Hmm. So um, that's a makeshift system. Um, And most deafblind people, as their vision changes, they actually grip more tightly onto the vision that they have and onto the visual modality. But I actually took a different course. When I knew that my vision was going, I went ahead and ushered in changes in touch, right? I got into touch more with people and with my world, knowing that this is my world, right? So it didn't have the same sort of stigma, I think, for me as it does for many. And it allowed me um, a great number of connections with others where I was able to just relationally jump into some of the historic and social relationships that were very rich in my life with others. And I wasn't clamped down on vision. Hmm. You know, I was able to let go of that and develop other means and modes of being in touch and being with others in the world through touch. So thinking about just how we know what we know and thinking about when the protactile movement started, which had its inception in Seattle. And in 2013, when I met AJ Granda and Yili Tanuccio, I had known them previously, but when I met them to discuss and learn about protactile, these ideas, I, I would say the formative impulse that gave rise to protactile was already in order. You know, I mean, it was, it's intuitive to many of us mm-hmm. to be in touch in these ways, but it was just us getting together in a way that was able to develop that, which is the protactile movement. Yeah. So even though protactile is not my first language, protactile is my third language, it is my native language. Hmm. It's the language that I live in, that I breathe through. So it's an interesting journey to acquire a native language 
as a third language and thinking about what that means, what nativity means in terms of the languages we speak and the socialities that we invite. And the people you referenced there, A.J. Granda and Yelitsa Nuccio, are leaders within the pro-tactile movement. You attended your first PT training with them back in 2013. You're in your 30s then. You write about how things changed for you and your wife and kids at home as you started attending these pro-tactile training sessions. Can you tell me how? Sure. So I was always in touch with my wife and my boys, even though we were using still a lot of words from ASL. But also the way that we would just function as a family, you know, in our home environment, still had a lot of traces of what I'll call distantism, right? Where we are working and living and engaging in spaces that are distinct from one another, not being beside each other as we're doing certain things. So someone would come up, my child or my wife would come up to me to touch me and tell me something, but then they would go back to the space that they were in their at their desk or on the sofa or whatever. So there is a spatial component to protactile where not only are we coming to touch one another when we want to tell someone something, but we're also sitting maybe nearby or um, happen to be convening in shared tactile spaces. Yeah, you can't yell across the room. You have to be in close proximity to the person you're communicating with. True. And not just when explicitly communicating, but also just living spaces. So imagine an adjacency where what you're doing is happening in a space that's beside what I'm doing. Okay. We're brushing by each other. So imagine if you're in the kitchen with your loved one and you're creating a meal together, or maybe you're creating two separate dishes. They want to eat peanut butter and jelly and you're getting cereal. Are you moving in your own sort of separate currents or are you brushing by each other, Hmm. right? As you move from the refrigerator to the stove, to the sink, right? Are you brushing your hand across your loved one's back? Or are you tracing your hand down their leg as you open up the cabinet to get a pan? How are you living and coexisting in a tactile ground? If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with poet, author, and deafblind activist John Lee Clark through John's interpreter, Helene Anderson. John has a new book out. It is called Touch the Future, a Manifesto in Essays. John, in one of these essays, um, you reflect on the idea you describe as distantism. What is, what is that and, and why is that a problem? Mm-hmm. Distantism impacts everyone on the planet, I would say. If you take an individual, they are sort of encased in a bubble, a spatial bubble. And depending on the culture they're in, they are sort of indoctrinated into beliefs, values, a cultural system that keeps others at some distance. When hearing and sighted people stay at a distance, they do use their distance senses of hearing and vision to maintain a connection across those distances. As you and I are communicating across the vast distance we are today, Pia. Hmm. Members of the deafblind community know that the distant senses of sight and hearing keeps the whole world at a distance. And there are norms in place 
social norms that keep the status quo. And so then people end up eking out a meager existence, trying to piece together as much as they can while still abiding by these social norms. Uh, It's almost like a puzzle, right? Trying to put together a puzzle with few and many missing pieces. And then if you look at structures that have been in place, like support service providers who have been trained to work with deafblind people as an intermediary, mediating what would otherwise be a direct tactile experience with the world, distances structures put us in a position to stand back and wait, wait for someone else like a support service provider or another person to intervene between us and the world. And while we're waiting for someone to intervene, you know, or to mediate our experience with the world, we are to just sit back and be passive. So really, distantism relegates us to a role of passivity. And instead, what ProTactile has encouraged us to do is to not stand back and wait and wait for others to give us, you know, the, the tidbits that they may want to share with us or that they think are important. And instead, to forage ahead and to reach out and be in touch with the world. Now, the reason why deafblind people oftentimes are reticent to do so is because, like I said, distantism is in our culture and there is a strong taboo against touch. I mean, imagine you reaching out to touch a stranger on the arm in a grocery store line. People are taken aback, as you can imagine. And so people have been trained, really indoctrinated to not touch. Look, don't touch. People reach out to touch. They get their hands slapped. And those lessons are learned early for many of us, and they they run quite deep. So we are working against those cultural impulses that keep us at a distance from one another. And and we're working to overthrow that mentality in a way and to reach out and get in touch because the world is right here, right here, just waiting for us. In one of the final essays in this collection, uh, you reference a Hindu fable as the original Telling goes generally, six blind men encounter an elephant, they touch it, and then they say what they think it is. So one says it's a wall, another says a spear, a tree branch, and so on. No one can agree on what it is. And the story, the fable is usually um, used to kind of illustrate how humans interpret things differently but and, and tend to jump to conclusions based on limited knowledge, and then they <laughs> fight about who is right. You rewrite this story, John. Um, tell me about the rewriting, how you're reframing it, and what you're trying to say. Yes, yes, that last essay. So I don't necessarily have a goal, or I'm not trying to say anything necessarily per se. What I'm doing is thinking through that fable. The fable of the blind men and the elephants one encountering a tusk and saying, oh, it's a spear. Another encountering, like you said, different parts of the elephant. If you look at the Hindu traditional story, what you have is blind men arguing about what they perceive. And you have a sighted person, a wise man, hearing them out in a very patronizing, sort of paternalistic way of saying, oh, yes, but you don't see the whole picture. Oh, yes, but you aren't getting the whole vantage point. That's what we have with the traditional fable. And in that traditional fable, you have a sighted person standing at a distance from the elephant, presuming to know the totality of the elephant, what its essence is, and the blind men not having that experience. And I wanted to challenge, obviously, that frame because we do have ways of knowing. Hmm. And seeing isn't equated with knowing. 
it is equated with one way of getting information. Also, one blind character knew that there was an elephant and then said, I don't know how I know, because there are so many different ways of knowing. And then there's also layers of social oppression that are built into the story, the social fabric that we have. And Pia, we have a way that we've been talking about these ideas in PT. And I want you to go ahead and get a sense of how we're talking about them in ProTactile, Mm -hmm. you and listeners. So go ahead and with one hand, hold it out, just a flat hand. Okay. And then your other hand, put your index finger through um, in the, the space between your middle and index finger. Okay. So what you have is a social fabric with the open hand, and you have an individual, a deafblind person, emerging or stepping into a place, a position within that social fabric. And so you have that finger that's between the other two fingers. It's limited in how it can move, the way that it can explore that space. Yes. If those two fingers, if your index and middle finger are brought more close together, if you like take your, and this might be hard to do with only two hands, Pia, we're sorry for you (laughs) because you don't have four hands at your disposal. Were you to be in conversation with another person and you had four arms, your finger would be in between my hand, Pia. Okay. my index and middle finger. Yep. And I would be gripping the tips of my fingers so that that space between my fingers would be kind of enclosing upon your index finger. So sure. you would feel a pressure. Yeah. Now you can also feel that pressure by the interlocutor, me, if we were seated together, could put my hands on your shoulders and bring my hands together around your neck in a you know, a suffocating kind of way. Yeah. And that's the same connotation that can be signified by this protactile word. English doesn't afford us these same sorts of gradations along this line of what spaces we're asked to occupy or invited to occupy socially and how we can engage in those spaces and how those spaces, what they do to us. Do they afford us room to move? Or do they constrain our movement and do they suffocate us? So what we have with these deafblind men, they're asked to step into certain roles as blind people in society. And they don't maybe want to step into these roles, but others of them do want to step into the roles in certain ways to play with the expectations of sighted society. Hmm. So that very last fable was a way for me to trouble and problematize the roles that we step into and how we can explore or how we cannot explore. And I was hoping to kind of convey that the way that we step into the social fabric oftentimes deadens us. Even when we're engaging in movements of resistance or we feel like we are, when we're engaged in a frontal sort of head-to-head, the movement that we're experiencing, the movement is an oppositional movement. It only allows us to move in particular ways. Whereas if we change the framework, hopefully we can move in new ways, you know, other ways that aren't pre-prescribed either by the social fabric or counter to the social fabric, right? And it's oftentimes a minor gesture 
or a break that allows for us to really germinate our own ways of learning and being. Because any way we step into a role in the mainstream and dominant culture, we're constrained, right? We're limited in certain ways. And so that's what ProTactyl has allowed. It's really allowed us to feel our way in our own marginal space, Hmm. which is alive, which is bustling, which is robust. And we can, from that marginal space, we can step across or step into some of these roles when we feel like it may be beneficial, but we certainly aren't limited by being only circumscribed to them. I appreciate so much um, having the chance to communicate with you today. Uh, Thank you so much, John. And um, Helene, thank you to you as well. Thank you, Pia. Thank you. I know what's happening there. I can do that one. I can do that one. Thank you, everyone. Yes, yes, yes. John Lee Clark is a poet, author, and teacher. His new book is called Touch the Future, a manifesto and essays. We spoke along with John's interpreter, who you heard there, Helene Anderson. And starting this afternoon, you'll find the audio of our conversation, as well as a written transcript. That'll be at cbc.ca slash Sunday. Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. The war in Ukraine was thrust back to front pages this past week, not because of battleground action, but rather because of what is not happening. International funding, which Ukraine relies on to keep up its fight, has been held up on multiple fronts. In the United States, a defense aid package is stalled in Congress over a partisan debate about immigration policy. And just on Friday, Hungary blocked a European Union aid package for Ukraine. So what does this all mean for the future of a war that is now approaching the two-year mark? That two-year mark will be in February. Michael Bossercue is a global affairs analyst and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Michael, welcome back. Nice to have you here again. Thank you. Good to be back with you. Yeah, I know you just got back from Ukraine like a couple of days ago. I'm not sure exactly where you were in the country, and I know it probably feels different depending on where you are. But generally, can you describe what the atmosphere in Ukraine is like right now? Sure. Well, a couple of things, really. You really do notice the economic slowdown. I was in um, Kiev and also in Odessa, which is my temporary base at the moment. And, um, you know, as as you correctly pointed out, the war is hitting that two-year mark soon. Uh, people are having a tough old time, tougher time financially. So <clears throat> restaurants are quiet, shopping uh, centers are more quiet. And, um, you know, a fact of life, sadly, is those air raid sirens that go off daily and nightly. In fact, uh, overnight, um, Ukraine managed to down 30 of 31 uh, Russian drones that attacked the country. And over the past week, 104 of 112. So, um, you know, it's so sad because when these alarms go off, people not only often have to run for bomb shelters, but a lot of businesses actually suspend operations, McDonald's and other places. And 
if you have three, four, five of these alarms um, <clears throat> every day, they're very disrupted. And of course, the other big thing happening is people are watching very, very carefully what's happening overseas, especially in Brussels and Washington in terms of funding. And uh, because of um, what you outlined about the problems with those, that funding being approved, the mood is is pretty dire at the moment. So let's talk more about these funding measures Um First of all, let's talk about the U.S. piece. Um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky paid his third visit to uh, the U.S. Yes. Capitol this week. He met with uh, President Joe Biden. He met with other lawmakers. And it came while this $61 billion, that's the number, um, defense aid package that Biden wants passed is being held up in, in Congress. It's over a battle between Republicans and Democrats over U.S. immigration policy, so not tied directly to Ukraine in any right. way. So here's the thing, Michael. Zelensky basically, and he certainly didn't want this, but walked away more or less empty-handed. So what does this stall signal to you about the state of American support for Ukraine? Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, it was, um, yeah, very kind of humiliating for him to have walked away empty-handed pretty much. Um, I don't know if it was the most politically wise decision for him to go to the United States, given mm. the toxic atmosphere in Washington right now and given the low chances of that aid being passed. I think it might have been better for the process to work itself out and then he can show up. But um, yeah, I mean, we're seeing this happening around the world where local or national politics are infiltrating into uh, foreign policy. Um, the uh, mo- mostly Republican uh, Party is holding up, holding hostage this funding for Ukraine, $61 billion. And Pia, to put that in perspective, $61 billion is just short of the $70 billion or so that the U.S. has given in total since the start of the oh, war. Wow. So it's an enormous uh, package. And it's going basically to three or four areas, of course, the military. It's also going to budget support uh, to fund uh, pensions and salaries. It's going to humanitarian aid, and it's also going to energy because Russia has been striking relentlessly Ukrainian infrastructure and bringing blackouts to cities. So the uh, White House is still trying to put an optimistic spin on this, saying that uh, they'll have another go at it in the in the new year. But yeah, I noticed one subtle change, too, in the language of Mr. Biden this time. Instead of saying we're going to try to support Ukraine for uh, for, you know, whatever it takes, it's going to be now for as long as we can. Hmm. So, um, you know, they they need to work a lot harder, I think, to bring the message home to average Americans why this uh, why Ukraine winning this war is so important. And the reason is, of course, is that if it is not defeated, if Russia is not defeated, this war step will this war will come to your doorstep in terms of higher energy prices, higher food prices. And also um, many, many of us believe that if uh, Mr. Putin is not stopped uh, he will um, invade Ukraine further, occupy Ukraine, and go further into Europe, and it will become a much, much costlier, costlier war. One more quick factoid, if I can. You know, the amount of money um, the U.S. has spent on helping Ukraine bolster its defenses and so on is really minimal. For about 3 or 4% of the U.S. military budget, Ukraine has been able to destroy about 50% of conventional Russian military capability. That's a real accomplishment, I think. Well, I'm glad you you brought up that last point because that's what I want to ask you. Say that this money doesn't get to Ukraine. How would its military, its leadership have to adapt its war strategy if it doesn't get funding like this? Yeah. Well, according to um, some of my colleagues who are on the front line, they're saying that Ukrainian troops have already been forced to Russian artillery and uh, rockets and things like that. 
because you know they the the generals the commanders read the papers too and they see that funding could be tricky um there is um but the tap is running dry because for example the state department has used all of its supplemental funding for the year and the department of defense 97% so they won't in, in in a few short days or weeks, they won't be able to uh, fund uh, new weapons deliveries to to Ukraine, and that will affect it. I think what will happen if the funding continues to be frozen, that Ukraine will turn more to European partners. But as you know, funding there is being held up too. But um, I think neighboring countries will will really come out and bolster Ukraine's defenses because they know they're on the front lines and that they could be next. All right. So... Let's talk about this is $55 billion U.S., um, the aid package from the European Union, which Hungary blocked on Friday. Again, this is kind of tied to a bunch of other issues, how everyone's sort of playing this. But what is the message? You said, look, I was in Ukraine and Ukrainians are looking to the rest of the world, especially the Western Islands, and seeing the support, Mm -hmm. at least in monetary terms, going down. So if Western allies retreat now monetarily, financially, what message do you think that is sending to you, Ukraine and Ukrainians? Well, it's a horrible uh, message to be sending is that um, it, it basically sanctions, it, it approves um, territorial grabs such as Mr. Putin's. It will signal to other dictators in the world that you can go and invade neighboring countries and, and get away with it with very little uh, punishment. And I think for Ukrainians, um, you know, they were a bit kind of bolstered their mood uh, this past week because um, their uh, application for EU accession was approved. And Hungary but let that said, through, yeah. Yeah, but the EU uh, $55 billion in funding was not, and mostly that's because of one uh, veto power held by Hungary's uh, Mr. Orban. So um, he did allow, he did not vote against the EU membership thing. So in a way, it was one of the biggest bribes in EU history for that to happen. I I think um, Ukrainians feel, from what I'm picking up from being there, is that they're they're on kind of a very um, high cliff right now. Things could go either way. And the other challenge for someone like Mr. Zelensky is, do I, for example, give a very positive assessment of what's going on, continue to give a positive assessment and risk uh, not having new funding because people will think, well, we don't need it. We're doing well. The other thing he could do is perhaps be more realistic, like a lot of Ukrainians are calling on him to do and say, look, things are not going the way uh, we intended. We need a heck of a lot more funding, a a heck of a lot more um, arms and airplanes and that sort of thing. And then maybe the West will wake up and realize that uh, this is something they need to take a lot more seriously. So then how are things going? Because as you say, politicians can you know, I don't want to say spin, but sell things in different ways. But how how are things going for Ukraine in the actual military battle with Russia? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, on the battlefront itself, I mean, troops are working very, very hard to make advances. There are very, very little gains, to be honest. And a big reason for that is the Russians have had a lot of time to dig in with uh, tank traps, with mined fields, with all kinds of other uh, blockages that make advances very difficult. You also have uh, very wet weather. Uh, The ground has not hardened because it's been mild so far, so it's difficult for Ukrainian troops. The biggest thing um, they want to and need to achieve right now is to sever that land bridge that links mainland Russia to Crimea. Uh, that, That obviously was established in the first days and weeks of the war, and that would be a major military gain. 
the other thing um, they could use right now is more range and more high power from U.S. provided missiles, like the Heidmars missiles, because that would allow them, for example, not only to poke a hole in that Kerch Strait bridge, which is Putin's pet project and also a very uh, important military link for, for Russia, but it would blow the thing away completely. Mm. So um, there, there's this hesitant hesitancy in Washington to give them that range and power that is difficult to explain. The other thing, Pia, that's happening when you see when you're actually there is that there's also, as I mentioned earlier, those drone attacks, uh, rocket attacks, they're happening uh, with a lot of frequency. And then um, just as I was leaving, there is a massive cyber attack against um, the prime uh, Ukrainian mobile operator. It was described as the biggest in modern Ukrainian history. It also disabled some air raid siren alarms. It disabled some bank banking machines. So this is also another kind of front in the war opening up, and um, Ukrainians alone cannot uh, cannot push that back. So you're Vladimir Putin sitting in um, Russia announcing plans to run for another term next year in what he calls elections. Um, other, obviously, other people read that differently. Right. But yeah. as he sits there and watches what you say, you know, is unfolding both militarily on the battlefield, but also with the Western allies, at least holding up billions and billions of dollars for now. What What do you think? How How is he interpreting all of this? Yeah. So, right. And he's facing um, the ballot box. Let's call it that. Uh, next year, it'll be one of 83 national elections in 78 countries next year, including here, including in the United States. So I think he's sitting back and smirking and um, probably predicted that if he drew this war out, according to the typical Russian playbook, draw things out as long as you can, that Western support will decline and that the Ukrainian morale could decline as well. I think the other thing that he's probably smirking at is um, the Israel-Hamas uh, war, which has taken away a lot of attention from Ukraine and has also taken, um, you know, there's more competition for funds. And the uh, war over there happened at the time there when there was a worldwide shortage of ammunition and artillery. So a very complex set of chess pieces moving about here, but one which Putin, uh, other dictators, are very happy to see happen. And this is such a sad, sad thing to watch play out. I, you know, I, I said this the other day, Pete, I said, if this is allowed to happen, if Putin is allowed to occupy, take over Ukraine, uh, history will judge politicians, whether they're in Brussels or Hungary or Washington, very, very harshly. Mm. And uh, I think at the end of the day, they will pay a price in terms of having to explain to voters why we're paying more for energy and food and why there's more migration happening, that sort of thing. The other thing Putin uh, may be, I think, keeping its eye out for is you mentioned the number of elections that are happening on our planet next year. Mm -hmm. uh, the planet is for in for change, I think, in, in given the number of elections. But um, is 2024 is, of course, an election year in the United States in November. Um if Donald Trump wins a Republican ticket, if he takes over the White House, I imagine Putin is assessing that possible change as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, as you know, the um, Floridian who wants to get back into the White House, um, he regards himself as the master of the art of the deal. I believe, and many others do, that he will try to cut a deal in the first one or two days of his second presidency. And it will be a deal not in favor of Ukraine. Um, so this is um, this is a big fear. I think also this is something that Mr. Putin has been preparing for is for that kind of gain. And 
I I wouldn't be surprised if we have another massive election manipulation by Russia in this election as well. So um, that if that happens, um, then more attention will be uh, shifting to Europe for it to do more for Ukraine. Uh, this is something that I kind of predicted very early on in the war that uh, support for the war in Ukraine in the United States would wane. It'll be more up to Europe to pick up the pace. But then Again, we're seeing such a division in European politics, um, you know, because these individual states have veto powers and some states which are almost uh, puppets to Mr. Putin. So it's a very, very difficult path to predict. One more thing, I think, um, if there is a, a kind of silver lining here, as you know, Nikki Haley, uh, who is very supportive of Ukraine, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., performed very well in the last debates, but also uh, I think she would be very supportive of Ukraine. She understands the dangers of a Mr. Putin being able to continue the way he is mm -hmm. unrestrained. So that will um, that will be a positive thing yeah, for Ukraine. Of course, run. the U.S. picture of, of, of funding and, and any aid to Ukraine sits, of course, partially with the president, but also largely yeah. in, mm -hmm. in Congress. So we'll see how that shakes out. I want sure. to ask you uh, about uh, sort of the mood. I want to go back to Ukraine, Michael. Um, 2024 was also supposed to be a year in which Ukraine uh, had elections, but it's declared martial law right. when Russia invaded, which prohibits elections. That that will continue. But here they had their president go to the United States, come back empty-handed. A couple days later, uh, have the EU say, yeah, we're not giving you money either. I'm not to put this on Vladimir Zelensky, but I'm wondering how the public sort of yeah. is seeing him now. You know, he was he was lauded by internationally and, of course, at home right. when this war started. So I'm just wondering what's the assessment of him at home? Yeah. Well, if I could answer it this way, I mean, I was also recently in Israel and I talked to a lot of Israelis and I didn't meet one who wanted, for example, Mr. Netanyahu to stay any second longer than actually necessary. Mm. Whereas with Mr. Zelensky, um, I mean, I look, I just spent 20 hours on a train with a whole bunch of people in Ukraine and all of them told me they're very supportive of, of this president. He's uh, made an, a, a kind of incredible transition from a television comic to a very charismatic, effective wartime president. Having said that, there are some kind of fissures or cracks uh, bubbling to the surface. Uh, his uh, uh, chief of staff, um, Mr. Zeluzhny, um, had some disagreements with Mr. Zelensky publicly about how the war is going. He, I think he called it a stalemate. Um, there's also questions about whether martial law is still needed. Um, for example, the media sector in Ukraine is suffering a lot right now because they've been kind of forcibly corralled into this 24-7 telemarathon. So there's very little revenue coming in and very little independent reporting going on. But in terms of elections, um, no, no support for that. Uh, public opinion polls also show that. I think the feeling is that uh, let's win this war, let's go to victory, and then hold an election and an election that can be properly administered because during wartime, it would be very difficult getting election observers in, guaranteeing the safety of election polls. And how do all the millions of Ukrainians that have come to Canada and elsewhere vote as well? So a lot of questions about that. Mm. Michael, you know, two years ago when this started, um, hardly anyone could believe um, that the war had was happening. Here we are two years mm -hmm. in. Um, I, I, I don't ask you to predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, that would be a, mm. a foolish thing to ask anyone really to do. But what are you going to keep your eye on as, as we sort of head into the new year? Sure. Well, I, I think I have to be very blunt with this one. And that is that, yes, if 
the funding doesn't come in this massive 55 billion from the EU 61 billion from the United States um the world needs to be prepared for in the next two years Mr Putin occupying Ukraine which will bring Russia to the doorstep Poland Hungary all these other countries and uh once again these western politicians will have to answer for that the other thing um we're quite nervous about is as i mentioned the state of the economy it's very very tough hmm. for so long to for small medium sized businesses for example to survive the airspace uh in ukraine has been closed for almost 2 years there's no commercial air traffic uh trucks are being uh held up at the border and the the black sea uh on odessa where i live has been blockaded for many many months uh by russian uh, military forces which makes it very difficult to export ukrainian grain so i don't think any nation on earth could withstand so many blockages uh to to its economy so you know bravo to the ukrainians for really showing this kind of irrepressible resilience and keeping the economy going keeping themselves going holding their families together that have been split up so badly by all this uh, migration so where um where I think all of us all of us you know diaspora Ukrainians uh, like me but also Ukrainians are hopeful because there's no other option hopeful that funding will come that there will be the ability to push back the Russian forces to where they came from and the most important thing I think for the world too is to push them back in such way where they're not going to attempt a land grab anytime soon in the future. All right Michael we'll leave it there. I always appreciate your analysis. Thank you for it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Michael Bosser Q is a global affairs analyst and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. Well, you can put an X on it. No need to Google it because ChatGPT will tell you it has been an enormous year in tech. And with the way technology increasingly reprograms our society, it is safe to say we'll be living with the developments of 2023 for many years to come. So who better to help us make sense of it all than Taylor Lorenz? The Washington Post technology columnist is so well known for her scoops and insights into the way we live online that she's been dubbed the Bob Woodward of the TikTok generation. Taylor's recent book is called Extremely Online. Taylor Lorenz, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's um, talk about the title of your book, Extremely Online. What does it mean to you to be extremely online? I think it just means sort of like plugged in um, with the internet and living in a world where the online landscape is your default reality. We don't normally think of extremes as good things. So is being extremely online something to be wary of? I think yes. Um, I say that as someone who is probably uh, myself extremely online. Um, but it can also be good. I mean, look, there's a lot of good and bad that comes with the internet. And um, I think it's important to sort of remember both sides. Okay, let's talk about the, some of the good and some of the bad. Um, and let's start with Google turning 25 years old this year. You've written it's no longer everyone's first or preferred way of searching for stuff online. I was a bit surprised to read that, if only because it's still usually my first place to go to. So what's everyone else doing here, Taylor? Yeah, it's so funny. I interviewed a bunch of people and they're like, oh, well, I always use Google. But then you start to press them a little bit more and it's like, well, where do you go for advice? Or where do you go to look up sort of like new fashions or things like that? And people are increasingly going to places like, you know, TikTok, Instagram, and forums like Reddit, um, which are sort of like communities. And so, you know, while Google still might be a, a place that a lot of 
people, especially millennials and older, go as like this default search engine, younger users especially are more likely to seek out information on those other apps. And also things like AI, asking just chat GPT basically the answer to answer your questions. So they're going to Google, but putting like the R for Reddit and then asking. Yeah, or they'll just search directly on Reddit sometimes too. And so what caused, in your estimation, the change in user experience at Google? Well, I mean, Google has degraded the user experience for years, um, quite intentionally by sort of pumping Google full of advertising. And I think Google's just also so overrun with SEO spam and low quality results that people are looking for more trusted information rather than just some like anonymous, you know, SEO farm based abroad. And you write about part of this all being people who are younger, right? And they just live, experience, take in, put out the internet differently than people who are older than than them. And you spoke to a middle school teacher who said his students are barely able to search effectively on Google anymore. Yeah, I mean, younger internet users just don't grow up using Google the same way that us millennials and older do. I mean, I'm in my late 30s, and I agree. I, I generally default to Google, but... Um, Again, younger users just they're they're more immersed in these other apps. And TikTok especially has become incredibly powerful as a search tool. And it just feels more reliable because you're seeing the person's face, you know, that's giving you the information or recommendation. And so, and video content also, a lot of people don't want the answers given to them in some, you know, advertising-laden spam website. They'd rather the 60-second video of someone answering whatever they're looking for. I mean, TikTok has billions of users around the world and it's really become the primary search engine for a lot of people. And they've, they've, they're working to build out search even more and they really want to take on search. And so, yeah, I mean, you can find anything on TikTok. Okay, let's talk more about Google before we talk about um, other platforms. Within the birthday year, it got some presents it probably didn't love, like facing multiple major U.S. antitrust trials. The U.S. Justice Department alleges that Google's dominance harms competition. I know it's not lost on you, Taylor, that we have this monopolistic tech landscape that has just a small handful of companies, including, you know, Google, Meta and TikTok. How do you think a diversified social media scene would change the experience of being online, though? Oh, it would make it significantly better for consumers. I mean, the problem now is, as I mentioned with the Google, is like Google and Meta essentially control everything. And it's very telling that the only um, social platform to even remotely compete with them is TikTok, which is also owned by a multi-billion dollar tech conglomerate um, called ByteDance. And so that's the level of resources that you need to even remotely compete with these tech giants. And, you know, I think Meta and Google have both significantly degraded the user experience on their apps um, because they know that they won't face competition if a new app comes up and creates a hit new feature, they'll just rip it off and, or, you know, if they can't buy the company outright. Walk me through that sort of degradation of user experience that you're seeing. I mean, I think users across uh, the internet are seeing this and that's what's leading to this frustration, right? We're talking about um, being overrun with advertising. Um, Our data is being harvested with literally no, you know, guardrails at all. Like we have absolutely zero data privacy essentially in this country. And, you know, just a, a worse user experience, like in the sense of, I mean, on Meta, I'm thinking of how they ban people's accounts very arbitrarily. Um, they are the ones that can sort of determine these sometimes quite draconian kind of 
moderation decisions. Um, not saying there shouldn't be any moderation on social media at all, but as somebody that works in news, for instance, I think it's very concerning that Meta's um, new Twitter competitor threads outright blocks dozens of words. So you can't even search, for instance, for the word COVID hmm. on threads. That's a huge problem for those of us that work in the news and are still covering the ongoing, you know, harm of the virus. So, or, or want to get the word out about vaccines. So things like that, where you really see, wow, there's no competition in these platforms are making really dangerous, dangerous choices. I'm glad you brought up uh, the connections between news and social uh, media giants, because it's a good segue to talk about one of the biggest um, stories for us here in Canada, which was um, the Online News Act, which will officially Mm. go into effect in the coming days, a number of days. So what came out of that saga was this $100 million deal between our federal government and Google. Google is going to pay that amount. It's not clear yet which news organizations will be the benefactors of that. But Meta um, took this position and has kept it for months now of not allowing people to post Canadian news stories on either Facebook or Instagram. It owns both, of course. What is your read on this and that relationship between news and social media as a sort of turning point. So in other words, like I can't post any Canadian news on Facebook or Instagram. No one can. You can't if it's Canadian news, so on and so forth. What's your read on that connection? Yeah, it's it's horrifying the way that these companies are trying to manipulate the news ecosystem. First of all, it's completely arbitrary who they consider a news publisher. So you have it's not like people can't talk about news. Content creators, as we've seen, talk about news all day long. But who they're punishing is these established legacy media publishers. Um, And that's really dangerous because a lot of times those publishers are the only ones actually doing the real reporting um, and figuring out, you know, what's actually going on. Whereas a lot of these content creators, you know, some of them do incredible, amazing independent journalism, but a lot of them are just sort of aggregating stuff they saw or providing more like commentary driven, like you know, news through a very hyper-partisan political lens. So I think it's it's really worrying. I think Facebook meta is delusional that news is not a core part of social media. Learning about the world around you is quite literally the reason social media exists. And so, you know, it's just, yeah, it's very arbitrary what they consider news and what they consider not news. And I think $100 million is also nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. Like, look at the profits that these companies have been raking in for years. Let's um, talk about Twitter, which is no longer Twitter. It's been rebranded as X this past summer. For people who have been following all the stuff, here's here's a little snapshot. Um, Elon Musk bought the company, and ever since he has, there has been no shortage of controversy. Uh, we saw him lash out at uh, advertisers leaving the platform um, after they left, after he's been endorsing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on X. He's reinstated Alex Jones' account after saying he wouldn't allow that. There are still a lot of people uh, on X hooked to X. In fact, I tried to get off it a couple of months ago, and then the war between Israel and Hamas um, started, and I realized how indispensable it is in many ways for me as a, as a news person. What role does X play today in our social sphere, and why are we still so hooked on it, despite all the negative things about it and the negative press? Well, there's no real replacement for it yet. I mean, we just have not seen an actual replacement for it. I mean, Twitter used to be a place for free expression. Um, Elon Musk has cracked down on free speech so hard, and he's arbitrarily banning people, and it's becoming harder and harder to share news on the platform. 
But it's even more impossible to share news on a platform like Threads, which again is outright banning words. And say what you will about Twitter, but you know, you can generally still share news on there without getting banned arbitrarily or without having wholesale articles banned from search. I mean, Threads is banning major stories from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from NBC, from search because they contain problematic keywords in their URLs. That's worrying. That's never going to replace Twitter as a place, you know, as a place for journalism. Um, so I think, I think we're all sort of captive on Twitter for the time being. And I feel you. I've tried Blue Sky. I think it's way too small and doesn't, it just doesn't have the same functionality. And Mastodon, I really, I've spent time on there. It's great for tech people, mm. but I think it's a little too complicated for the average user. So yeah, I think we're still, a lot of us are still reluctantly using Twitter because there's no real alternative. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and this has happened to a lot of people who are on Twitter, there's a, maybe less posting oneself and a lot of looking what other people are, are, are posting. And we're seeing that dynamic um, changing and there are levels of engagement changing. Um, but as you say, for now, at least, um, X, or formerly known as Twitter, exists and many of us are still on it. Um, I want to talk because when we talk about whether it's X and we talk about Musk or we talk about Zuckerberg and Facebook, we often talk about the mythology of these founders of these platforms are usually framed as these Silicon Valley geniuses who have shaped the digital world. There's been a splashy biography of Musk out this year, another one coming, I think, and I, on next year on his Twitter takeover. But in your book, Taylor, you make a point not to write about these guys, not to write about these figures, but rather you write about users and content creators instead. That's a deliberate decision that you made. Why did you make it? Yeah, I think it's a huge shame that the story of social media has been essentially told entirely through corporate narratives and sort of glorifying these men, um, this very small group of, of billionaires and acting like they're some sort of geniuses, you know, that, that, that came from above and bestowed this technology on us. When you actually look into, um, you know, how these platforms have emerged, it, it was nothing like that. It was actually, and these are very heavily user-driven products. Users and content creators played pivotal roles in this online ecosystem. And often the tech founders were just spectacularly wrong time and time again. And the only reason that their platforms are successful is because of the sort of ingenuity of um, power users on their platforms. So I just wanted to tell the story of the rise of social media that's not just like the social network version, hmm. you know, where it's this young genius man, because that's just not how tech happens. So give me an example that illustrates your point that you say, like, look, we're just telling these singular stories about the, the guy at the top. I mean, look at something like Twitter, <laughs> right? The focus is 100% on the founders and um you know, not even just Elon, but before it, Jack Dorsey. And, you know, it's this founder obsession. When you look at how Twitter emerged, first of all, they had no idea what Twitter would be. Um, and actually, key features on Twitter, for instance, the retweet, the um, hashtag, the at sign, all of these were developed by users. Um, you know, the user Chris Messina came up with the hashtag to more easily track conversations across the app. These were things that the founders actually often didn't want and sort of considered annoying until users pioneered this behavior. And you see this just time and time again across all platforms where 
Um, I mean, Vine is another one I talk about extensively in the book where the founders had this very hostile relationship with their user base, actually, that was using it in very pioneering ways that allowed the app to grow. You know, I, I think it's hard. I mean, I talk to tech founders a lot and tech founders create products with an idea in mind. I mean, YouTube is another example. YouTube was created as a dating platform. <laughs> and it wasn't until users began uploading home videos and ripped, you know, clips from SNL that it became the platform that it is today and they pivoted away from dating. Um, YouTube, the founders were smart and I think they, they've they leaned into sort of working with the user base, but yeah, these people are not geniuses that run these companies at all. The other big word, certainly that was used, the the idea of it was used a lot in my home. I have three kids, a, a teenage daughter and then two 10-year-old boys was um, the idea of influencers, right? So my daughter, like the influencers on TikTok, like she wants every product that some influencers <laughs> sold. But, but my boys too, you know, they are among this group of kids. And there's a poll that shows my kids are part of nearly 30% of kids age 8 to 12 who say YouTuber as their top career choice. When I ask my boys, like, what do you want to be on a, when you grow up? It's like, want to own a pizza restaurant or be a YouTuber, like a YouTube. So what do you read into that about uh, the growth of sort of influencer and kids looking at these as, I don't, I don't want to say they're not real jobs, but I'll put that in quotes as real jobs. Well, they're very much real jobs. They're just as real as literally any other job you could have. I don't know where people got the idea that running a media company is not a real job. Not only is it a real job, it's an incredibly difficult job and one that's very hard to do successfully. So I would challenge anyone that thinks that video editing, reporting, content creation, graphic design, like this is what it takes to entrepreneurship. I mean, in what world would we say being a startup founder is not a real job? It's just an absurd thing to claim. Mm. <laughs> it's just crazy. Now, what I think is bad is that we have absolutely zero social safety net in this country. So if you pursue this type of career, you are going to have no health care, absolutely no health care, absolutely no support, zero financial safety net. I think it might be different in Canada, but at least in the U.S., it's a very precarious job. And I think that these tech companies have sold a lie to children telling them that everyone is going to hmm. be successful. That's just not true. Only maybe like 0.1% of people are successful just the way that only a very, very small amount of startups more broadly make it. That doesn't mean that we should tell kids not to become entrepreneurs, but it's a hard, you know, it's a hard thing to do. So when you were talking to kids, because you went to talk to these kids who were going to a summer camp to teach them how to be online creators, what were their motivations, some of their motivations for being there? God, well, it was not very money-driven. Um, I was actually shocked. The majority of kids spoke about confidence and creativity. A, lo a lot of them felt sort of socially ostracized and um, had interests that maybe didn't align with people in their physical environment. And so they talked about going online and kind of building an audience around things that they would be interested in because that way they could have developed friendships. A lot of them hmm. also said that, you know, they were scared to do things, for instance, like learn to swim. But if they created a video, maybe documenting their journey, that might be the motivation they need to kind of challenge themselves to tackle that fear. And other kids, you know, they, they talked about wanting to help people, wanting to support their parents. A lot of them talked about the the extreme financial precarity that their parents in, the lack of health care, the fact that their parents couldn't pay their medical bills, Obviously, you know, tens of millions of people have zero health care. Uh, medical debt is incredibly common in America. And so I think these kids are growing up and seeing that. And yeah, they said, well, look, if I had 10 million followers and my mom ended up back in the hospital, I could post about that. 
And then hmm. um, people could pay for her medical treatment, which we know is also a huge thing in America. You know, um, that's how a lot of people get their medical bills funded is through going viral. Um, and so I think it's pretty dystopian if you ask me, but the dystopian part is not YouTube. The dystopian part is the fact that we have a country that uh, doesn't provide basic services and has indoctrinated children to think that they need to go viral to access basic sort of social services. You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it in this way because, and I, and I think you might have heard me uh, suggest in the question that I asked you when we were talking about influencers, that there's such a stigma about influencers sort of culturally. Why do you think that is? It's misogyny through and through. As I write about in my book, this is an industry that was pioneered by women dominated by women, is still dominated by women, and actually people that have been shut out of the traditional labor market. So a lot of um, LGBTQ people, people of color, um, you know, they're the ones that really built this entire industry. And when you talk to people about, well, why, you know, what is it about influencers that you don't like? You hear a lot of misogyny often. It's, oh, well, they're vapid narcissists, or they're just beautiful women taking pictures on the beach. Of course, that's not even remotely what it is, but that's how a lot of people think about it. And actually, when you search the word influencer on Google or on some of these image generators, that's what you get, this young, sort of scantily clad woman. And so I think a lot of sort of hatred towards that industry and towards that profession is just driven by misogyny. All right. We have one more big kind of canopy of topics to talk about. So let's talk about artificial intelligence, the big shakeup at OpenAI, the firing and rehiring of CEO Sam Altman. What did the drama at OpenAI tell you about the top brass at tech companies and whether we have, there are adequate safeguards? Oh my gosh. I think it just revealed all the major problems in Silicon Valley. I mean, one, that you have an enormous amount of power consolidated in the hands of very few and very rich and very powerful men. Um, I think it's very concerning that the two women were removed from OpenAI's board. Um, and these are women that, again, raise concerns about safety um, and were replaced with people that essentially don't care about safety and want to just go all in on it, sort of the acceleration as a model of, of artificial intelligence. So I think it shows that Silicon Valley has learned absolutely zero lessons from social media and they will pursue growth and money at all cost. And I think it shows also that the government and regulators and the public is not really willing to hold them to account. We're willing to kind of let them get away with anything as long as they deliver these kind of novel consumer products that we can all use. What's um, the big tech stories you're kind of like thinking 2024 you'll be watching for? Well, we've got an election, a presidential election. And so I think the presidential election is going to be a main, I think Twitter is going to be continue to be a big news story. Twitter remains a hub for politics and disinformation and stuff. So I think, yeah, I think um, the election, Twitter, AI as well, this is the first um, election that AI generated content is going to be sort of pervasive in yeah. And also just we'll see how Meta kind of evolves. I think Meta has become this kind of big dinosaur company that's struggling to compete, but is hamstrung by, you know, a lot of kind of baggage. And so we'll see how they continue to grow. Taylor, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Taylor Lorenz is a technology columnist for The Washington Post. Her new book is called Extremely Online. So if you, like Taylor Lorenz, are extremely online, then you definitely know what the acronym AITA means. It stands for 
Am I the Asshole? And it's one of the most popular forums on the website Reddit, one where users crowdsource opinions and judgments on their interpersonal dilemmas. If you're not familiar with AITA, here are the kinds of posts you'd find. Am I the a-hole for skipping my best friend's wedding because it was child-free and I couldn't find a babysitter? Am I the a-hole for wearing a backpack to a concert? Am I the a-hole for not paying the full amount for a family-style dinner where I only ate bread? Am I the a-hole for refusing to pay for my sister's wedding dress? Am I the a-hole for asking my coworker to bring different food for lunch? I have a coworker, Jessica, who often brings her lunch and uses the microwave. Yesterday, she brought a meal that took 10 minutes, plus constant stirring. I decided to ask her if she could bring things quicker to heat or let others go first since I didn't want to add a passive-aggressive note to the microwave. Am I the a-hole for telling my boyfriend I don't want to hang up a giant picture of his dog who's passed away? Am I the a-hole? Am I the a-hole? Am I the a-hole? Ah, people's dilemmas. So AITA is no flash in the pan. It is marking its 10th anniversary this year. So people have been asking that question for 10 years now. And so we've gone on a quest to find out how AITA came to be, why it endures, and how it's even helping to fuel tech far into the future. I'm Mark Bolak, a photographer and animal care specialist currently living in Maine, and I created the Am I the Asshole subreddit in 2013. I started the subreddit about 10 years ago because I was experiencing a conflict in my own life and I didn't know if I was on the right side of it or not. And I wanted to ask somebody who didn't really have a dog in that fight to comment on it and give me a reality check to find out if I was out of line. The dilemma I had specifically was a pretty common one. I was working in a conservative office and had to wear essentially a full suit, which means a tie around the neck and several layers of fabric, if not shoe leather. Most men in the office wanted the air conditioner to stay below 72, preferably at 70. Most women in the office wanted it to be a much higher temperature. And I was wondering that if uh, my contribution to the argument was just to come in and say, why don't you wear a sweater? (laughs) Question mark. Would I be really out of line? AITA was born all over the internet. There is no shortage of users giving unsolicited opinions on the appropriateness of someone else's actions or someone else's statements. We're all in an absolute rush to uh, race each other to be the first one to say this one said something offensive or that one's behavior was out of line. And this all happens in a huge vacuum of people actually soliciting those opinions. It's not about solipsism. It's not about someone saying, show me everything I want to hear and show me my existing opinions reflected back on me by some algorithm that knows what I want. It's, it's people saying, here's the way I conduct myself and I'm putting myself out there for anyone else in the world to tell me if it's right or wrong, to tell me what I should think about it, instead of just some platform finding a way to tell me what I already think. My name is Jacob Hirsch. I'm an associate professor of organizational behavior and human resource management at the University of Toronto, and I study human personality, decision-making, and motivation. I think the main appeal of the Am I the A-Hole subreddit is that 
Human social life is inherently ambiguous. We have so much uncertainty with our interactions, with our relationships with other people, and we're often left with this feeling wondering, did I do something wrong or did they do something wrong? We have these abstract sort of ambiguous social situations and you're trying to separate. Okay, look, this is what was right. This is what was wrong. The whole process is kind of like a collective moral sense making where we're all trying to figure out where the lines are because the lines are not clearly defined in most of our lives. And so it's nice to have a little space to try and figure out, okay, this is good, this is bad. And that exercise itself, I think, provides a greater sense of moral clarity, which we might not find in the day-to-day -day noise of our social conflicts. Anytime we're working in a relational context where we're thinking about our families or our friendships, we're thinking not only about our perspective and what's valuable to us, but what the impact is going to be on other people as well. And pooling these different values together is the, exactly the challenging point, is trying to reconcile different points of view and different valuations or, or evaluations of the same event. Trying to make sense of that all into a coherent response is the challenge of decision making. I think the popularity of this subreddit has definitely changed in light of the global circumstances and the political factors that we're surrounded with. Uh, certainly in the late 2010s, moving on to 2020, we had a lot more political conflict that we're experiencing in our lives. Huge political divisions and polarization. And this again, undermines the sense of moral clarity and moral certainty. My name is Regina Rini. I hold the Canada Research Chair in Social Reasoning at York University, and I teach classes in philosophy, especially questions about how we negotiate social space, ethical norms, and political agreements, and basically how we handle information for shared decision-making. There's this really interesting project. It's called Delphi. It's operated out of the University of Washington, and what it does is it uses crowd-sourced training to teach an AI program, something like ChatGPT, but a bit different, to be able to answer moral questions. Part of the way it works is that it has been fed data from Reddit forums, including Am I the A-hole, as a way of generating a whole bunch of example dilemmas. So what computer scientists are doing with this is they're, they're just gathering up a huge pile of these different dilemmas and using algorithmic techniques to extract features of them that train the AI to recognize patterns in what sorts of things people find morally troubling or, or morally valuable. It's not perfect yet, but it's really impressive. And it, it's an interesting use of crowdsourced discussion by real people on the internet as a way of helping artificial intelligence to understand what matters to us as humans. The subreddit is used as a data set for the, the starting dilemmas, but the answers don't come from the subreddit. Those come from human judges who are paid online through different platforms. People tend to choose this subreddit to post ambiguous cases, cases they're not sure about, and that's really valuable. If you want to teach an AI to be able to answer hard cases and not just the easy, obvious ones, it's really good to have a big data set of ambiguous and, and difficult questions to work from. For the moment, it's a theoretical project. It's, it's basically to see how good the technology is. But in the long term, it could be valuable for things like helping to guide content moderation for online sites like Reddit. So if we have a sense of what community guidelines are supposed to be, what, what's an inappropriate thing to talk about or an appropriate way to, to phrase your question, um, having crowdsourced data on what lots of people think about ambiguous situations could help with that. If you think about the scale of some online platforms, there's just way too many 
many posts, there's way too many posts on Facebook or Twitter or whatnot for human beings to look at all of them. And so to some degree, AI is going to have to do the initial filtering. And so what we want is the AI to be more sophisticated than just identifying certain bad words. It also needs to be able to detect the kinds of patterns that are more subtle and, and require human judgment to worry about. In the very, very long term, this is imagining decades or even centuries into the future, we're likely to have artificial agents interacting with us in the real world. Robots or software agents that control things like cars or airplanes or whatnot. And we are going to want them to share our values. The way that researchers talk about this is we talk about whether AI is aligned with human values. This is really complicated. No one knows exactly how to do it, even how to make a machine understand that. And, and certainly it's not been done yet, but this is a really interesting first step towards helping figure out what it would take to encode human moral judgment in a way that a machine can internalize and be able to reproduce on new cases that it's never encountered before. Again, definitely not perfect. There are lots of social biases hidden in the data we have to be careful about. But as a research project, as a first step to see how this would be implemented in the future, it's, it's promising so far. And it's really interesting that this, this subreddit is part of the data that powers it. Some reflections on the origin, staying power, and future of the hit subreddit AITA, aka Am I the Asshole? And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Sam McNulty. Our senior producer this week is Pete Mitten. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. And thank you also to Susan McReynolds for her hand this week. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.